Hello, and welcome to the Spectator PM podcast. I'm Luther, joined as always by Aubrey. Aubrey, how are we doing today? We are doing very well, enjoying the Christmas holidays. I'm different background today. I'm at my parents' home. Um, so hopefully no younger siblings barge into the library to play foosball or anything else that's up here. Um, <laughs> was that one of the gifts of foosball? It was. We, so we have this tradition in our family. There are these things called red fire truck gifts because at one point when my dad was a kid, he got his sister a red fire truck for Christmas as a sibling gift. Um, the red fire truck was very much for him and not for his sister, but it was her gift. He played with it. So we, we are of the opinion that the foosball table is a red fire truck gift because my dad loves foosball. Um, <laughs> that so being is, is there anyone who can seriously challenge him or is he the king of the domain in the foosball realm? He's currently the king. He is being challenged, though, um, my college age brother and the uh, 12 year old are very competitive when it comes to foosball. It's a lot of testosterone in a study. There must be like foosball marks on the wall. If we come back in a year, we can probably count the, <laughs> the impacts <laughs> around the room. Because, <laughs> yeah, when I went to this even summer camp as a teenager, man, we did some damage to people, to property. When you start yeah, spitting, or do you guys do the, the rule where you have to keep your hand on, on the posts? Like you can't just rip it uh by lifting upward oh i'm sure they they rip it <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> that's good i haven't actually seen it yet so yeah yeah it's fun they're enjoying it yeah it's fun until you're losing and then that's one of the just the most painful games to be losing at i'm not sure why <laughs> i think it's because you're locking eyes with your opponent like it's it's an intimate setting to be getting skunked and then to just have to hear them say oh man you put in a really good effort you know just to try to have <laughs> your pride a little bit like no i know i'm bad just let me stew in this for a minute and i'll come back better than <laughs> ever sorry it's true. very true yeah i know it's funny my dad plays francis beats francis Francis plays Nate, beats Nate. Nate plays Leo, beats Leo. Leo is on the bottom of the pole at the moment. There needs to be like a, a house-wide tournament and see if uh, the leaders maintain. Be kind of like the, the March Madness. You just never know what's going to happen. Yeah. No, it's interesting because like I've heard that girls um, have faster reflexes than guys. Um. So maybe the girls will be good at it, but they don't tend to play. That's true. It's probably a mercy thing. They just don't want to <laughs> embarrass we'll the one. men because there'd be a lot of sullenness in the house and no one needs that. Yeah. Yeah. My uh, Christmas move is I got this sweater at Costco and we were trying to think of gifts for all the other men in the family. And I'm like, you know what? Dudes like sweaters. So later today, I'm going out and getting sweaters for for all the guys, in-laws, my dad, my brother, brother-in-law. All the dudes are getting sweaters, and they're all going to love it. 
because we're actually celebrating Christmas a few days later. It just worked out better that way. But we're all going up to the cottage, so it should be a good time. And we'll all be cozy. Yep. New sweaters, yeah. (laughs) New sweaters. No, sweaters and socks. You don't appreciate them until you're a bit older, and then you're like, oh, actually, though? (laughs) Yes, because there's nothing worse than having to go out and buy those things for yourself. Yeah. That's really what it comes down to. It's like if your parents offer to pay your phone bill for the month of December as a Christmas gift, and you're like, oh, bless you. Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's the greatest thing you could have ever done for me. Uh, yeah, perspective. Suddenly having expenses really changes things. Whereas as a kid, like everything's, it's just all disposable income. Yeah. Uh, and so to have socks, you assume socks will appear anyway. Uh, so it's a net negative because that's one object you unwrapped that now isn't something you'd rather have. Uh, but I was helping my um, niece and nephew were in town with their mom. And so we took them to every possible playground. And I was amazed at how many playgrounds the area had. But I was never more invested in finding every single playground because <laughs> they were, they were, they're good kids. But good mercy, they were tearing up the house. There's just something different between being married without kids and then having kids in, just appear in your house one day. And yeah, you have to kid-proof the house. That's the a real chaos thing. that ensues and the loud noises and the things that break that you didn't think could break. Uh, it's incredible quite the sight to see but it was mostly just a whole lot of fun and of course showering them with gifts uh but you know we should talk about the american spectator a little bit uh so what did you find on the site to read uh that got you thinking um i think this piece came out on christmas but james h mcgee's if only in my dreams it has a longer title than that but it was a uh, he kind of dove into the history of the I'll be home for Christmas song, which we all know and love, um, and talked about what it meant to the people who heard it when it first came out back in the forties during the second world war. And yeah, I just, I really loved his approach to the song. I always love those more cultural pieces though, that are like, they kind of dive into the history of music and culture and how it impacted people. Um, I think it's, it, it makes the song way more meaningful when you're like, oh, these people actually really, you know, it meant something to them. So. Right. And if you're looking for something that touches on American culture, um, social history and, you know, Battle of the Bulge, which if we're talking about battles, oof, that's that's top <laughs> 10 for sure. Got to be. Yeah. Um It's got everything anyone could ever want in an article about Christmas. Sorry. I didn't realize how close that battle was. Like, I mean, I'd studied it. I love 20th century history, but yeah, had not. I guess I never ever read something quite that went quite that much into depth. So. Yeah, I mean, everything was against the Americans in that situation worst worst structure for defending yourselves uh no air cover which was their greatest advantage at the time 
and then to just have columns of armor coming at you as you're just hanging out in the woods. <laughs> uh, as someone who hangs out in the woods from time to time, I would not like seeing a German armor column coming my way. And it's the sort of thing you don't know that they're on their last, you know, bit of uh, diesel fuel or petrol or whatever. Uh, you just know that there are turrets moving in your direction that you'd really rather not see, and you have nothing really <laughs> to counter that. Uh, it's amazing what the Americans were able to do uh, in that moment. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So please go check out uh, Jim or James as you would know him. Uh, my pick is uh, Scott McKay's Barack's Lieutenant, the racism, revenge, and rune of Claudine Gay. Uh, and so Scott's just going off in Scott fashion and really laying into not only Claudine Gay, president of Harvard, uh, who, you know, picked some things from others, uh, to put it mildly, uh, or really just plagiarized her way to the top of the Harvard hierarchy, um, using the advantage of DEI, which she sort of established at Harvard, uh, and that this sort of thing happened at the behest of Barack Obama, Harvard grad, and a guy who's uh, pushing for these sort of social equity programs that gave us <laughs> the worst Harvard president in some time. Uh, so please do check that out. It's always a reminder that, especially with when you're talking about true elites, most of them do know each other and have advantaged one another in some way. Uh, so Scott, handles that well. Uh, did you have any thoughts on that one, Aubrey? I thought it was an interesting connection. I hadn't, I mean, part of this was that I grew up in, like, I, I guess the Barack Obama age, right? I wasn't old enough to really understand what was going on necessarily, but I hadn't really thought of the connection between Obama and the DEI programs in higher education. Like that, that thought just hadn't crossed my mind. So it was really interesting to see somebody who was definitely, you know, thinking politically and analyzing the situation back then, way back in the Obama era. <laughs> <laughs> For a 20-something year old, that's, uh, that's ancient history. <laughs> um, you know, it, it was interesting to see his analysis of, this, of how everything connects, because I just, I don't have the, you know, the political background to be able to make all of those connections quite yet so yeah check it out highly recommend um now we wanted to take an aside and chat about uh the modern dating scene for a while it's a subject of some of our writing uh some of our videos even and just <laughs> The dire straits the young people are in. Uh, Aubrey, could you kind of give us a synopsis of what may have changed 
in the last 10 years from when I think most of our listeners were dating um, or earlier, really? What, what has the digital age brought us in the dating world? I mean, I think the biggest thing is online dating. I had a friend describe this as, to me as like, it's incredibly objectifying, even on the better online dating sites. Um, we were talking, we're, we're talking about Catholic match because he's looking for somebody there. And it's like, I just, I, every time I log in, I, I feel like I'm objectifying these women. It's like, you get a bunch of qualities. Like, do they meet all of these checkboxes? If they meet these checkboxes, you send them in, you know, you send them a message, you send hundreds of messages and you get like eight replies because you know women are doing the same thing on the other side <laughs> right and that's like catholic matches i guess considered one of the better ones i mean like people aren't on there looking to hook up or anything so i i think that there has been i don't know it seems like from the girl's perspective i guess and you can tell me how accurate this is it seems like guys hesitate sometimes to ask women out because they're never sure how women will take it and they don't want to be rejected, which is an age old problem. But it seems like the men of today are far less likely to ask you out than in past ages. And people are also waiting a lot longer. They want to be more settled and established than, you know, they used to. Yeah. And when you talk about rejection, I think the stakes are higher because if you're coming into it as like a 26 year old, you're almost approaching it as a, a business partnership. <laughs> you have established property, you have a, a life, certain expectations, certain quality of living that you'd like to maintain or improve where instead of at the age of 16, asking multiple girls out at your school and kind of getting used to, you know, sometimes that works out. Sometimes she says, stuff it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's all right too. Uh, I, I think it does have to come with just exposure to repeatedly asking and sometimes uh, being rejection, uh, being rejected. Uh, but Kate, our producer, uh, what do you think? Dating is wild. And I, I know this isn't kind of the route that we wanted to take, but I wanted to get your guys' opinions on like what role that politics play in it. And because like, I feel like not only are men afraid of being rejected, but the whole me too thing made them afraid of touching anything. <laughs> uh, Literally. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I think that that's, that's pretty accurate. Um, I also think though, that there is a lot less willingness um, that those of not proper grammar, but you get the point. Um, people are not as willing to cross the political barrier as maybe they used to be. Like politics means a lot more to young, you know, young conservatives, young liberals than it used to. And people like a conservative man is not super willing to date a super liberal woman. Like it just doesn't tend to happen, mostly because they have different values and expectations, which is as it should be. But at the same time, like it does limit the pool quite a bit, especially if you've graduated college and you're no longer, I mean, like I went to Hillsdale. So like you're not everybody agrees at Hillsdale, but we're all basically on the same page. So that's a very different world from, you know, living in super liberal Columbus and like 
people are not on the same page. Yeah, I had that issue in Iowa City where, you know, I was pretty, pretty red for the most part, but then you get Iowa City and it's the bluest part of the state. And oh my God, it makes things so weird. And it, it I mean, definitely more of the guys are conservative and the females are liberal. Um, and so I like, it's just such a weird mesh because, and I'm from a family where my mom is a Democrat and my dad's a Republican because, you know, that long ago, it wasn't as polarizing of a thing. Um, like I feel like it is today. And so maybe that's something that's making it even exponentially harder that like no one even really wants to talk about. Yeah. And I think politics are now attached to what we consume and where we go uh, in a way that in the past may may not have been the case. I mean, bookstores have always kind of been a squish lib hangout uh, and the gun range, you're going to have more conservatives. But even when you're talking about like a 24 hour gym, <laughs> there are certain kinds that those with the liberal disposition will go to, whereas the conservatives may be at the you know, punch the wall, plates only, we don't do machines here, kind of, <laughs> kind of a spot. Uh, and this even translates to like our food, like you're conservative, you may choose your Chick-fil-A and Culver's. And if you're a lib, you're going to, I don't, I don't know where they go because I'm that one. Uh, but I assume they probably have food. I think they eat. Uh, so probably <laughs> vegan. So probably so. Yeah, some vegan wrap place. Uh, but that we've we've been forced to politicize parts of our lives, and really to hold opinions that most people don't really care about, but feel social pressure to care about. I noticed that in school. I was an older student. Uh, but that, you know, 5% of people really cared about politics, but they forced the other 90% of people who are, you know, socially active to have those same views. And it was extremely frustrating because you could see that someone wanted to go do something different, like to go shooting, but you could never say, I'm going shooting this weekend what a lot of fun at a place like Lawrence. Yep, <laughs> Iowa City's the exact same way. And you like, ah. have to tiptoe so much. Right. And so you people don't want to be where they have to tiptoe. Exactly. Uh, and so we're leaving one another. We're choosing to stay inside, keep to ourselves and our routines. And there isn't a lot of room for other people when you only deal with the public for 30 minutes a day running out to get your Walgreens or what have you. Uh, and I mean, that's where organic human interaction happens. Or you're like, oh, hey, she's pretty good looking. I should go talk to her. Doesn't happen if I'm sitting in my house all day because the only thing I see are cats and they're cool, um, <laughs> but they're not, you know, grown ladies to marry and have babies with. Um, so <laughs> that was a weird example, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that gets to the point where we try to replace meeting people in real life with these digital proxies. Um, 
but you're going into a marketplace where you can't trust who you're seeing is that person um, at all and starting a relationship with doubt and mistrust i even if it's the best situation like you two are completely compatible going through an app where you've been burned by multiple people not being who they say they are it seems like that's creating a significant barrier is that fair to say yeah and it's not even just about being burned it's that when you meet somebody you get a lot of social cues and like you get a taste for who they are especially if you're a woman i feel like on the way that they interact with you in person right like we pick up on the tiny little the the hand gestures tones of voice and all of like online dating apps it's totally devoid of that for the most part i mean you can do a video call but it's not quite the same as like meeting somebody in real life and being like oh you're actually a sweet guy or oh man you are very awkward <laughs> very well, interesting well um, what's even whether or not it's a dating app or anything on the internet, the first thing you do when you meet someone is look them up on Facebook, Instagram. And, you know, that basically turns into a dating app, um, whether you want it to or not. Um, and that's kind of doing the same thing as where that person is choosing exactly what they want to show you of themselves. And it's probably going to look a lot, you know, they're, they're five-star qualities rather than their one and two-star qualities. Um, well. And then, you know, you get you meet them in person and it's kind of a disappointment and reach that disappointment factor again. <laughs> right, right. And you're more likely to say no. Although I will say, I think I'm on this page and I think most conservative women are where like, if a guy asks you out and he's a decently nice human being, like you'll say yes to a first date and maybe a second one. You may not say yes to dating, but you'll give it a try. Yeah. Like, Definitely. and I think that a lot of people don't, necessarily recognize that like if a girl's single she'll give you a chance probably a hundred percent yeah i mean i'm the same way so for the conservative guy who is looking at the andrew tate wing of the right where it's women are the problem and he's looking at the women in his life who are not as andrew tate would describe them um where it, for those unfamiliar with Andrew Tate, it's pretty much that women have effeminized men and that they are the reason for everything bad in the, in the world and that a man's job is to control women, more or less. But for a young man who sees, is hearing that temptation while at the same time looking at the women in his life who are wonderful and loving to their husbands, hopefully, um, and saying, how do I meet a woman who is similarly respectful and wonderful and Christian? Uh, where does he go looking for those women? Because the women that this young man wishes to subjugate are those in pornography, right? And he has endless access to bimbos, airheads, women who, uh, lower themselves to despicable standards for the admiration and you know money of men uh and i think well we all know that's a real issue but i think as far as knowing where to look 
he knows where the bad examples are, but he may not know where the good ones are. Uh, and so where would you say to, <laughs> he should start searching uh, and get out of wherever, whatever hole he's in uh, where he's only seeing the worst examples? So, I mean, my advice would be, it, it probably doesn't work that well for Andrew Tate, but to like normal people, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, you know, use your network, like your friends, partners, friends, not saying that always works great, but you know, just the real people in life that you know, like those soft connections, um, you know, maybe not the people you've known for 10 years, but um, I feel like kind of using the people that you do know really well to get to know people that they know sort of well is kind of a good way to do it. Cause you know, you have something in common with, you know, person a, um, but yeah, just using, using real people, not using the search bar online. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was going to say, and you know, Andrew Tate's who, who he surrounds himself. Like I said, that may not really apply that greatly to him. It just kind of may lead him back to the same point, but for normal people, I feel like that can work somewhat decently. I think there are also a lot of, especially now, there seem to be a lot of like young adult communities building up, whether that's, I mean, in the Catholic world, there's like young Catholic professionals and like, you know, hard, you know, groups that form. And that can be a good place to start um, getting involved in something like that. And at least it, it exposes you to people like more than, you know, once a month or something. Right. Or, and, and I know that there are other similar organizations and groups within, you know, the Protestant world as well. Like they exist. You just have to go out and, you know, attend a talk, talk to people and actually try to reach across like the gender barrier, which sounds weird, but like you have to actually talk to women. To <laughs> no, no. Like, like when you go to a social event, there cannot be a segregation. If there's a segregation and it naturally happens, it's so funny to me whenever this happens. Yep. Um, but like men want to talk with men and women will tend to talk to women and they don't always like just walk over and introduce themselves to, the, you know, the opposite gender or whatever. It just doesn't tend to happen, which is funny to me. I also get that it's scary to walk up to a group of laughing, giggling girls and introduce yourself as the lone guy. So yeah, th that is intimidating. <laughs> uh, Bring a buddy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I would offer to young men uh, and young women actually is first uh, to not suck. And by that, I mean, <clears throat> go and volunteer, get involved in stuff where you are acting alongside other young people that could even be you know volunteering uh, for a sunday school or a wana or what have you where you're showing your positive qualities and you are giving to the church uh, an organization of your time where others can observe because even if you're not working alongside a beautiful young woman you may be working alongside her aunt as you're helping with the babies on Sunday mornings, and she may say, hey, there's this wonderful young man at church who's doing this. And I kid you not, it works great. Uh, 
I fell for my wife. Uh, I was actually her sailing instructor, which this was pre me too. I'm allowed. I'm allowed that. Uh, but I had had a painful breakup in the spring and I entered the summer saying, I am going to find a girl who will date me. And so with that in mind, and you have to be really purposeful about it. Like you, you generally don't fall into these things. You say to yourself, I'm going to make this happen uh, and then look for opportunities and take advantage of them. In this case, there were two girls in the area, both a year younger than me uh, and both lovely. One was dark haired, one was blonde, didn't matter to me. Pretty girls are pretty girls. But in the course of the class, I watched both of them and one was an absolute shrike towards her little sister, just mean, nasty. Whereas Emily, the woman I ended up marrying, was lovely and took time to help the little kids that she didn't need to be doing, uh, but set up their sailboats and she was just wonderful all the way through. And I said, that's a great lady. I wanna go date her and see if she likes me. And uh, sure enough, she did. So, I mean, that, that's for people who've <laughs> not immediately found a future spouse. It can be kind of annoying where, oh, of course, it's sailing classes. You've just found the love of your life right away. But I was also in a position where I knew what I was looking for and I had the opportunity to watch and see who this woman was before I made any move to start dating her. The dating happened because I was attracted to just how generous of a woman she was. Um, and that's what I suggest to others. Um, it can't hurt because with a lot of these young people groups, you're right. There's no central activity to kind of distract you from, I have to date someone. <laughs> but if you go out and give of yourself and you're already doing something positive, you aren't wasting your time. You won't be dismayed that it didn't happen today because you're already feeling pretty good about yourself and other people are watching you and assessing and saying, hey, this is someone who I can recommend to others who are looking. Um, that would be my advice. My my last tip, and then I'll dip out of here, would be like, in, for people post college, get a hobby. In college, yeah. my hobby was hanging out with friends um, because they were all right there, which is great. Do that in college while you still can. Um, but I couldn't tell you what my hobby was besides going out on the weekends and tailgating and hanging out with friends um, and other long college things, which again, fine, do that while you can. But, you know, post-grad, I work from home. I'm not going to meet my husband here on my couch. <laughs> like, <laughs> Wouldn't that be a surprise? Right? Wow. <laughs> Real wake-up call to me. Um, <laughs> but no, get a hobby. And like, you know, even I, I love dogs. I volunteer at my dog shelter. That's my hobby. I'm not going to find my future husband and a dog like you, Luther, with the cats. But, you know, I'm going to find someone with a you know, similar interest. And even if that's not my future husband, it's a friend to get me out of my house and off of my couch on the weekends. So 
you know, getting a hobby is never going to hurt you. Trying something new is fun. Um, Being new at something is fun. So that's my dating advice is get a hobby and maybe a dog. They're great. (laughs) Dogs are great. That's true. Any last thoughts for the good of the group on dating, Aubrey? Dating? I don't know. I mean, I think that there's probably a pretty good chance most guys have a girl that they're keeping an eye out on. And if you do, just ask her. Like, <laughs> Please. Like, seriously, just ask her. She wants you to. She probably knows you like her, actually, believe it or not. So uh, <laughs> you're not you're not hiding it. So just ask. Yeah. And uh, to the young women listening uh guys are just thoroughly dense and they may not pick up on any clue (laughs) so if it's getting to a point where you're getting just serially annoyed with him just let him know um you know do him a solid (laughs) before you write him off because it's almost certainly density and not um disinterest Actually, disinterest means the absence, eh, whatever. You know what I mean. I'm not going to be pedantic about it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, let, let the guy know. Give him a chance to at least <laughs> know that, you're, that you'd be willing to go out on a date. Um, but we're speaking with you, Aubrey, with this beautiful bookcase behind you. And the classic education uh, supporter, I guess you'd say. Um, Stan is what young people would call him. Uh, Jeremy Wayne Tate recently had a uh, tweet about the family library and the necessity of the family library. And that more than even formal education, having access to more than 100 books in a house really changes how a kid uh, succeeds in life. That this is one of the biggest tells in whether he will uh, do better than his parents, whether he'll stay out of you know, addiction, uh, all sorts of ugly lifestyles. So what can you tell us about growing up with a giant bookcase? <laughs> I mean, I loved it. I was, I was totally a bookworm. I think I learned how to, I taught myself how to read. We got halfway through like the hundred easy lessons to teach your kid how to read, maybe 25 lessons in. And I was like, this is boring, mom. I'm going to go read the line <laughs> in the way to wardrobe. See you later. And my mom was like, okay, sure. That was easy. <laughs> um, I grew up reading books that were definitely not intended for my age group. And that's, that's something that I found really interesting, especially in the homeschool world. You get to curriculum and they're like, you should be reading, I don't know, like, the Aeneid in 11th grade. I read the Aeneid in eighth grade. I didn't get everything out of it. I read it again in 11th grade. I got much more out of it. And then I read it again in college. I got even more out of it. But like, you can, I, I think that sometimes books are like this grade level or this age. And that is totally not, I don't know. It, it depends on the kid. Some of my siblings took much longer to learn how to read, even though we have the giant bookcase. Um, it depends on the kid. It depends on the person, but yeah, no, I would say that, I don't know. Books are a very important part of my life. I love them. Lots of them. Yeah. And to your point about 
<laughs> getting to Iliad earlier than is suggested. There's something to simply breaking the seal on a book. Uh, mm -hmm. Where there were a lot of books I read. I think I started the second Harry Potter in second grade. And I didn't understand a thing that was going on. But a year later, I had a lot more just cultural information, uh, how the world worked, that I could go back to it and read through it that much more quickly. And it wasn't intimidating because I'd already given it a shot. And I had the same thing with The Hobbit, uh, where we had a small paperback and the words were just really small and it just seemed too much. But six months later, out of pride, I was like, no, I'm going to get this thing again. I only got 40 pages into it the first time. I'm going to double that. And so I think for building a kid's confidence with books, especially the longer ones, the bigger ones, the ones that adults fear getting into because they never tried, uh, simply opening the book and seeing some of the main components of the plot is enough that it makes the next read through so much easier. Uh, and I don't think you would have pulled nearly as much out in 11th grade if you hadn't tried it in eighth grade. Yeah, I mean, books are one of those things where like, especially the classics, the great books, you have to go back and you have to read them multiple times and you're going to get different things out of them for each time. I mean, not not in the, uh, I don't think it's technically considered a great book, but like, I feel like every time I come back to it, I get more out of it because it's written at like different points in this, you know, this character's life, right? And so you you pull different things out depending on where you are in life. I think that's true of the, you know, the classics as well. Um, the Iliad, the Odyssey, you get different things out of them when you go back years later and you're like in a different part of, part of your life. Yeah, and as a writer, I think it's crucial uh, to go and read. Um, what recently I read, Johnny Got His Gun. And there's there's certain books that are referenced so often in the sort of writing sphere where we're always borrowing from each other and using <laughs> oblique references. <laughs> and you don't get all of them all the time. Or reading through Moby Dick again. It's, oh yeah, okay. I understand now this essay I wrote or read six months ago, more of what he was trying to communicate, but I just didn't have everything I needed at the time. And I'll forget stuff again that I'll need to go back and brush up on. Uh, but to better communicate with each other as writers, we need to, need to be progressing as readers as well. Uh, and it's always interesting, the, especially the most popular writers, you can tell whatever he's reading at the time by the references he's making. <laughs> all of a sudden, Jonah Goldberg will be dropping all these Dune references and you'll be like, what the heck happened here? <laughs> he must be reading through the uh, Children of Dune at the moment. Uh, and... Um, so it never really yeah. stops. But I think as adults, we forget, like I remember the top shelf. My parents had these books, usually the hardcovers that, you know, were more advanced, but also had, you know, more adult themes in them. 
Uh, but there was a time where I could ask my mom, hey, may I get such and such a book, um, Uncle Tom's Cabin? And she'd be like, yeah. And we'd maybe talk about it for a bit, but then I was free to go and do that thing. And, you know, just that glow of pride uh, of success, having made it far enough that your parents trust you with the advanced novels as a reader, as a thinker. I, I don't think it can be overestimated how important that is for kids. Uh, to get that approval and sort of enter the world of adults, not all in one go, but a, a word at a time to put it longishly. But <laughs> it's true. That's how you read. My parents were, didn't grow up reading as much as I did. And so my introduction into the world of literature was relatively, you know, it was unguided for the most part. Like I just kind of read whatever I felt like um, on our bookshelves. And they they have done an excellent job curating the bookshelves. But like I read 1984. I, I was too young to read 1984 when I first read it. I didn't understand most of it. But yeah, there were, there were a few books that they would introduce me to slowly. Like um, Left to Tell by Immaculate, what's her last name? The, this is a story about the Rwanda genocide and her experience. That one was one that my mom was carefully curated. We talked about it multiple times as I read it. But most of the books that I read, I read on my own. I didn't have a conversation about them. I just discovered a whole new world on my own. And my guide was books, which is great. So like, you don't, I, I feel like sometimes, especially in conservative circles, there's this emphasis on like, and not censorship, that's the wrong word, but like curating what your child is reading. And, and it's important to some extent, but to some extent, like you have to give them the liberty to just to explore the great books and they will do it on their own. I mean, the stories are good enough on their own. Yeah. If I may use a Winnie the Pooh reference, I think about a children's, uh, a child's literature diet, sort of like the hundred acre woods, right? where there are some real wild elements, uh, some briar patches, some ugly stuff. Like we had, I think it was The King Must Die, which had some uh, <laughs> pretty graphic sexual content. There was uh, obviously a lot of killing, dying going on. Um, but all of these things were within the purview of increasing my knowledge of the world while not introducing ideas that are contrary to what my parents ultimately wanted me to know uh, and to hold. And so I think when we talk about the public schools where they're trying to force kids <laughs> to, who are only reading maybe a book or two a year in school, to only ingest these very progressive uh, bromides, which are just bad writing on top of that, uh, that's entirely out of bounds. Whereas having this bookshelf where you know there's content in there that is more adult inclined, uh, but that nonetheless, the, the kid can discover and reject on his own or can come back to it at a future point or, what, or read the whole thing. Uh, you've created 
the world in which he gets to read and he has the liberty in those thousand novels to pick out what's speaking to him at the moment. So again, conservatism isn't shutting everything out. It's saying there needs to be barriers, but within these barriers, within this sort of proverbial Garden of Eden, you can do pretty much whatever you want. Go at it, kid. Um, right. And come to me with questions if you have them. Here's a dictionary. <laughs> Figure it out. <laughs> I hate a dictionary so much. Oh, oh yeah, mom. when you go ask your mom a, a word and she's like, check the dictionary. Like, oh no, got to get out <laughs> Merriam-Webster and plop it's like it on. Massive, and then, yes. like, I was always been I was always bad at the alphabet, which I know is ridiculous. But I I'm the kind of person who will sit there and do addition on my fingers, and I will recite the alphabet multiple times to find anything in the dictionary. Um, which is really bad. It really is. But I hated the pro the whole process. And you have to do it multiple times because you have to find the first letter and then the second letter and then maybe the third letter. It's frustrating. Yeah, it's de it's demanding. Um, I have a calculator right here on my on my computer. Yeah, I've started using <laughs> my calculator. Uh, journalists are no good at math, but I figure I can be okay at math most of the time. <laughs> um, but I do need to get running. So New Year's resolution, what do you want to do for yourself in the coming year? Do for yourself and do for others. Yeah, I, I think my big like work resolution is to I've started dipping my toes into video. I would really like to get much, much better at it. More like mini documentary type stuff rather than, you know, just straight commentary or mini podcast segments. Although I could definitely get better at speaking on podcasts. That's another thing. Um, but just being more comfortable with the record button and with animations and all that fun stuff. So, yeah. That that is kind of a goal. It's a loose goal. They say you should be specific. It's not a specific goal, but whatever. Who cares? So <laughs> make a goal and I'll, do it. I'll take it. I'll take that. That's <laughs> legit. Um, as for me, I want to write a book this year. That's uh, I've got a bunch of Navy stories that have been bouncing around in my head, and I don't want them to be too literal. It's not really a memoir. It's more supposed to be goofy, short. And the sort of book that you can throw at your friend and say, hey, read this. This is ridiculous. And um, get passed around that way. If you've ever read Roald Dahl's uh, Boy or Going Solo, his sort of autobiographical sketches of his life, that's what I want to do. Because people actually read those books. And I want people to read the book I write instead of like every political commentator, people buying it just because you've yelled at them for six months to buy it and then it goes on a shelf and gets donated in a year that's what Worth i don't pennies. want <laughs> yes or that so that's that's what i'm looking for and i think i can do it so we will resolve to complete these things and then report back to our listeners who will be just agog at how masterful <laughs> We are self-control and uh, affecting our will. Right. Uh, anything else for the good of the people uh, besides wishing them a new happy new year? Not really. Yeah. Have a great new year and make resolutions. Try to accomplish them, I guess. I don't know. 
enjoy yep. it. It won't, it won't necessarily be a fun year. I think we have a piece coming up on that, but it could be great nonetheless. May we all survive to see 2025. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. All right. Well, with that, uh, for Aubrey, I'm Luther. This is a Spectator PM podcast. Thanks. Thank you for listening.